You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash Thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash Thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Todd Palmer, and he is founder and president of Extraordinary Advisors. They work with leaders, executives, entrepreneurs to help them figure out how they're going to grow, transform their business so they can be more successful. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of things about business. We're going to learn more about Todd and his background and how he got to doing what he's doing today. I'm excited for this conversation. I always love to talk to other entrepreneurs of other Inc. 500 businesses, executives that have been through that process. I know it's, it's a journey that is full of challenges, full of stories. Hopefully, we're going to talk about some of them today. So with that, Todd, welcome to the program. Bruce, thanks for having me on today. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So what we talk a little bit about your background. How did you get into this position of advising entrepreneurs, CEOs? What was the backstory? What was the process you went through? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's for me, it's really the messes I made in my business have now become the messages I give to my clients. So I started my company, uh, gosh, when I was 27 years old in a sort of company called Diversified Industrial Staffing. We, at the time, we were a temporary help company. We were positioned in the Detroit market to provide temp help, day labor for mostly manufacturing companies. And you know, by nine years in, you know, we had some good runs at you know, one point three offices, nearly thirty employees. Things I thought were going pretty well. And I think like a lot of entrepreneurs who, you know, been in business almost a decade, you think you've got it all figured out. And that's really when the the wheels came off, the rug got pulled off from under me. And fast forward, I had two clients go bankrupt on me that I'd given yeah. extremely generous payment terms to, Ooh. which was not the best decision to make. It's a mistake we make once. Oh <laughs> uh, yes, we definitely make once, but unfortunately I made it back to back. So that <laughs> that put us that and a couple other unfortunate decisions put us about six hundred thousand dollars in debt. Yeah. I was two months away from running out of all of my money, including losing my house, which at the time uh, I was a single parent and my then nine-year-old son was not too excited by the fact of being potentially homeless due to his father's choices and decisions. I finally got over my imposter syndrome, which at the time had paralyzed me to the point where I didn't want to talk about the messes I'd made. I didn't want to talk about the position I was in. I thought if I just buried my head in my sand, the world would pass me by and I would live to fight another day. And as anybody who's listening today knows, that's a terrible strategy. Uh, I reached out, I hired a coach, got financially literate very quickly, Mm -hmm. realized I could move some dials on the finances. I took a look at my team. Team was toxic. It was dysfunctional. It was unproductive and underperforming. And on September 9th, I walked in and fired my entire company. And I started over. In the iterative process of that, we figured out some niches we could go after where there was an increased demand and a diminished supply, a great place for a service-based entrepreneur to be. Mm-hmm. And we went on to make the Inc. 5000 as one of America's fastest growing companies six times. So mm-hmm. I've, been to, I've been to the the bottom of the valley due to some of my own choices. And with the help of others, I was able to, to dig out of that and, and live to fight another day 
including paying off all six hundred thousand dollars in debt. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, not not I wouldn't say a common story, but not an uncommon story. In that I find that many successful entrepreneurs, business leaders have had you know a challenging story in their past. You know where it's kind of the crucible of you know figuring out who they are, what they're capable of, what they know and what they don't know. There's often a, a big humility streak in there. You know, kind of oh, coming sure. to terms. I'm curious. You you know you mentioned the financial uh, literacy. What what were the things you realized you just didn't you know know financially or understand financially that were hurting you or, or resulting in the situation you were finding yourself? Um, you know, for me, it was I was chasing the revenue in the space mm. I was in. You know, Classic. Kelly Services World Headquarters, two miles down the street from my office. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking I've got to get to twenty million dollars in revenue. I've got to do. I've, you know, I was basically shooting all over myself. I should be here. I should be there. I should do this. I should do that. I was very susceptible to being led by my clients versus managing my business. I was really being of over service to their demands. And I I was chasing the revenue, not focused on the margin. I was giving extremely generous payment terms. And in 06, 07, when this all came down, it didn't realize that we were right at the beginning of essentially the depression, the recession that had hit. So we had clients that were were using us as their bank, which is again, Mm -hmm. a bad business model. And so when I hired the consultant, we came in, we took a hard look at the number we realized that we were overstaffed for where we were. Our internal exp- our, exp- internal, our internal costs mm-hmm. were exceeding what we could handle, and our clients were were not paying us quick enough. Our margins were terrible. We couldn't handle that. Yeah. And um, what I thought I was doing was really be, it was almost 365 degrees wrong. I just didn't know what I didn't know, and there was a lot. Like you talked about the humility piece. I think I ate humble pie for about a five year period. Yeah. Yeah, it can be bitter, but uh, you know, once, once consumed, it puts you in a new league. I think it, it is one of the best things you can do as a leader is is really learn from that and and don't waste that opportunity. Um, you know, because it is a unique opportunity and, and and growing growing from that, learning from that. Absolutely, it, it for at least for me, it it really helped me focus on two things. I'm tenaciously persistent, and I have much more resiliency than I ever would have thought I would have had be, before '06. Yeah. Yeah. And tell me about the the rehiring. So, you know, I mean, coming in and kind of cleaning house, letting everyone go, realizing this is not the team you need. What did you do differently or what was your strategy or what was your kind of, you know, new new approach when you went back to kind of rehire the people you needed? What was different? Well, that's a great question because I'd, I'd fallen under the myth of only hiring people with recruiting industry experience or temporary mm-hmm. help experience. Yeah. And I realized that, you know, when you hire someone with experience, you're getting their good experience, but you're also getting some of their bad experience. Yeah. And there's a lot of people, especially in the staffing space at the time, who are more retreads. They work two or three years here, two or three years there, and they would just kind of move through companies. So I came up with a process that, I, that would, now we call it, um, we teach it to our clients how to hire for DNA, not for resume. Mm. And we hired, started hiring people differently. We, we started interviewing differently. We looked for different traits because we felt that if you're a great person, I can teach you to be a great recruiter. Mm. But if you're if you're a mediocre person, but you're toxic for our culture, toxic for our environment, um, you're not going to last long, and it's an expensive choice for us to make. So let's flip that switch. Let's do it differently. So really, how do you fit into our culture? We had a lot of culture-based questions. And, you know, what is your background? What is your <laughs> DNA around customer service? That really became the primary driver. And you know, one of, for a long time, we didn't hire anybody with a human resources background. We didn't hire anybody with a recruiting background. We really focused on people who were transitioning maybe from, from restaurant, retail, who had high levels of customer service training and turning them into great recruiters. Interesting. Any good questions that you would ask? I'm always curious about how people actually do their kind of cultural questions. Like what what is the conversation that you have or the situation you create where you get that insight about 
really what is that individual's core values to, and, and how does it relate to your company and how do you kind of understand or figure out if someone's a good cultural fit? Well, the first thing we did is we put our, our core values on the website. Yeah. And so we announced who we were to the world first and foremost. Yeah, I like it. So we're very clear in who we are. And so we would ask a lot of questions around the areas of failure because being a recruiter is really hard. You get told, <laughs> yeah. told no a lot. And yeah. You know, it's it's one of those t- difficult occupations where you can do everything right. You know, you're you're essentially like a real a really uh, crazy matchmaker. You get a, a lonely client who needs people, <laughs> you know, a, a candidate who who needs a new job, and you try to put them together. But so much of your success is predicated on that relationship forming. So we we really started pivoting to. How are, how do you help other people get things they want out of life? Tell me some stories about how you help people in college or how you help people in high school. I had one person, you know, we had a lot of people who had, had call reluctance, fear to get on the telephone. Had a, a young lady come and interview with me who came from the medical space. She was, you know, entry level on the phone. And she said, part of my job is I work for a, a specialist and he does cancer. He does a lot of work with cancer patients. And I have to often call people every day and, t- and inform them Ugh. they have cancer. Yeah. If I can pick up the phone and do that, I can pick pick up the phone and tell someone they have a new job. It's going to make my life a whole heck of a lot more stress-free. And she actually ended up being with me for, gosh, 12 years. And at one point was my number two in charge and my top recruiter. So had I just only seen her resume and only saw that she had, you know, a year out of school working for a doctor's office, why would I have brought her in? But when I talked to her and she told me her stories, is that recruiters have to be great storytellers. Yeah. We have to be able to to capture the audience and then disseminate, you know, Bruce's story to employer X or Jane's story to employer Y and why they're great. Because though nowadays, especially, you know, you can go to Indeed, you can go to ZipRecruiter, post your ads, and you're flooded with resumes. Yeah. The recruiters are really being able to to hopefully make a difference and help people in the marketplace get jobs they could not find on their own. We averaged about a 20% pay increase and helped companies find people they couldn't find because they weren't answering ads through portals. Yeah. Yeah. It's you, you have sort of get out of that job board market to find those new candidates and those, there's potentially, you know, un, untapped talent or, or, you know, talent that isn't actively looking. So they're not looking at the boards. You've got to go out and find them. I think that's exactly. always been the value for the recruiting. recruiting Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And when you, once you got this, uh, sort of new team in place, what did you notice about your kind of role, your day-to-day? How did it change your kind of view of the company, the things you were focused on? I'm, I'm always curious when people clean house, bring together a new leadership team, you know, a new team around them, how it changes their both mindset and their kind of the day-to-day work that they're doing. You know, I had to lead differently because I didn't have a team that had a tremendous amount of recruiting industry experience. So I had to be different. And I worked a lot with my coach at the time to get them to essentially fail forward quickly. Now you see it so much more in the tech space where there's version 2.0, 2.1, 2.2, 2.3. The tech space is used to that. In the recruiting space, it very much felt like a a win-loss. And so we're trying to get out of the marketplace right in the middle of a recession. And people are saying, we're not hiring anybody. You know, we're not going to use you or anybody else. So we started coming up with different questions. such as, well, Bruce, if you're going to hire somebody, if you, could, if you could hire your perfect unicorn, tell me what that unicorn would look like. It's kind of a weird question. Plant manager's <laughs> like, well, you know, if, if they could you know, do this, do this and do this, I'd make space for them. I'm like, really? So hmm. and we kept hearing that over and over and over and over again, especially as Detroit was moving away from automotive into aerospace manufacturing, yeah. medical device manufacturing, military manufacturing, different manufacturing. Like, really kept hearing it over and over again. And finally, it came up to us that we needed to pivot our model. Our model had been very client-driven. 
We need to become what they would call in the recruiting space candidate-centric. It's like being a sports agent. There's one Mike Trout. And if I can market Mike Trout to five ball clubs, get them into a bidding war for Mike's services, I will make more money. Mike will make more money. And one company will be happy. And I'll have unearthed four other companies that need Mike's services. So we started doing that with CNC machinists machine repair uh, people yeah. in these blue collar non-tech spaces because these guys are essentially the the, the forgotten employee and, and manufacturing was, is always very slow to change in how it's do, doing things anyways but I had these clients that would recognize hey listen if you can get me a guy who can program a machine operate a machine run a machine he's a profit center for my business mm-hmm. so we stopped having the price conversation and we figured out, like, okay, so if I've got Bob and he can do what you need, you're going to make space for him. Yeah. Well, you do realize that, you know, Bob's going to cost more than your average temporary employee. I'll say, yeah, no problem. I totally understand that. Great. How, when do you pay your people? Will we pay weekly or biweekly? Those are the only two answers I'm going to get. Well, that's when we need to pay Bob. So we need to get paid weekly or biweekly. So we can't be in a 90-day payment cycle. Mm-hmm. And we would put all that into our contracts. So we moved our margins. We got, more pay, we got paid quicker because we found that inflection point of increased demand, diminished supply. We got paid faster. And we got it, it by asking better questions. Anybody who's listening today, if they can come up with the best questions to ask their ideal target audience, the audience will tell you what yeah. they need from you. Yeah, yeah that's a, and that's a great case of just – the, the more you figure out your strategy, how you're going to differentiate, where you're going to focus, the more you can command a superior price that gives you the you know cash flow, gives you the profit margin to be able to actually invest in the business and grow and scale it. It's, just, it's this irony of the faster you want to grow, the more you need to focus. And I think a lot of companies just right. don't see that, don't get that. We, we absolutely couldn't agree with you more. We were way too high. The more niche focused we became, and going back to your question of how did I manage the staff, we used to have contests to see how many people could get rejected per day, not how many people could you have successes oh, per I day. Like it. So we took the paradigm because we knew we were going to hear no a hundred times a yep. day. This is back in the days when you could use the telephone to actually pick it up and call somebody and they would actually answer <laughs> the other. So again, probably for, for anybody under 30, it's like, yeah, exactly. uh, I think I saw that in a movie, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross or something. It, it's, oh boy. But it used to work that way. We could get people on the phone, have those conversations, and my staff would get rewarded for their activity-based, not their result-based pieces. And that really, and it became competitive. And, what, and the, the beautiful thing is the recruiters, and I would jump right in there with him. We'd, hey, I heard this, I heard that. And we would just, we would iterate on the fly. We would move on the fly. We'd hear different things in the moment. And we would, we would iterate and grow so fast that the failure became part of our journey. So once we got the recipe baked, we knew what we were doing. We decided we want to own the really tiny sliver of the marketplace and be the best at it, which allowed us then to, again, charge more, get paid faster and be seen as an expert in our space. Yeah. Well, and, and I think you're, you're hitting on one of the key things, which is once you figure out that focus, you can then design a clear process around it, a clear set of steps, a procedure, an SOP that tells you how to deal with that situation because you've defined that customer, you define that need very, very well. And then you can actually focus on that input activity because I find so many companies that you know are so focused on the results because they don't have a process. They haven't identified you know the series of steps, the uh, sort of mechanism they're going to use to generate results. But once you do that, then you can and say, look, all I need to do is put more things in the top, right? I just need to measure yeah. how many calls am I making? How many people am I reaching out to? Because I know that, you know, one out of 20, one out of 100 are going to lead to the results that we want. And we can constantly improve that. Like we can look sure. at, hey, can we, you know, can we increase that that conversion by 5%? Is there a way we can shorten this time for it by a day? But but without having a, a defined process to iterate on, like you're, 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 you're just swimming. You're not really working in any kind of structured way, which then you're just saying, okay, well, I just need dollars, right? And now right. you're 
right. got metrics that people have no ability to hit or there's no process to hit around. Well, so, and that's so yeah. so important for, I think, any startup entrepreneur or any entrepreneur who's trying to grow and scale. And I hear this all the time from my clients. They're like, so i got to put a process in place, but it's going to mute my creativity or I'm not going to mm. be able to chase the bright and shinies. Yeah. There is some truth in that. Absolutely. That's what my staff found with me. Like It created a governor for me because mm-hmm. once the process was in place as a crazy entrepreneur, I wanted to invent a new flavor. No, this works really well. Get out of our, my staff said, get out of our meeting yeah. and go do what you do best and go, go iterate in something else. Leave. I love it. But what I've really discovered is once we put a process in place, it's like a box. And inside of the box, the creativity can just grow exactly. with those, those boundaries there. Because at the end of the day, all we're doing as entrepreneurs is we're trading one set of problems for a new set of problems. So my mm-hmm. problem before is I'm $600,000 in debt. So I dig out of debt and I'm making great money. Well, now I've got to pay more taxes. Well, that's a different problem. And I argue it's a better problem for me to have. Um, I think you upgraded problem. problems there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's like people like I had a client the other day say, oh, so now that I've hired you and I've retained you, I'm going to get rid of all my problems. I said, oh, no, yeah. you're going to have a different set of problems. You're not going to have to grow your staff from 20 people to 80 people, and you're going to have to manage people differently. It's not going to be your friends and family working here anymore. You're going to run out of people. So you're going to have to learn how to do this, and you have to learn how to do this. He's like, oh, my goodness. I thought I would just get rid of all my problems, and it doesn't work that way. Yeah, yeah. It's And so many times, I mean, I've, I've just met with so many CEOs, you know, founders that have moved into the CEO position, and, and they struggle with that transition. They struggle with that mindset shift of going from, you know, they're kind of problem solvers and they're, you know, figuring out new opportunities and what's a new product and service we can offer to really being optimizers of how do you take this, this, problem that you're solving quite well and how do I make it repeatable and building quality and scale it and honestly I, I have conversations with folks that do you want to do this like is this oh, is this great. really what? what you want like are you going to be happy and if you're not going to be happy let's either figure out a, a different role for you and let's bring in mm-hmm. people that are going to do that or or maybe you just want to start new businesses maybe you really don't want to grow and scale this thing to a couple hundred million maybe you like a five ten million dollar business and let's start another five ten million dollar business I mean I think there's I think people don't have that conversation or, or they assume that they're just going to move into these roles without really thinking about it. I couldn't agree with you more. It's so interesting that the skill sets it takes to launch and start a company is essentially in a lot of places, you're essentially building yourself a job mm-hmm. and you're the practitioner. And then once you get to scale, you're no longer, you're no longer just the only practitioner. Yeah. And maybe you once were the best practitioner, but if you hire right, you should hire people better than you. And so you won't be yeah. the best practitioner. And then yeah. to go from working in the business to working on the business, oftentimes I find a lot of the entrepreneurs I've worked with get so defeated in some way. Their, their itty-bitty negative committee in their head starts feeding them with all this this gunk and, and, and misery, and they think it was going to turn out differently. So a lot of the work that we end up doing, and I'm sure, I'm sure you do the same thing, Bruce, is you you work on the mindset, yeah. and you work on how to get them to, to pivot. How do you look at success? Because a lot of times, you know, typically entrepreneurs start their first business to prove to themselves mm-hmm. or to somebody else they can actually do it. Mm-hmm. As they do their second business or they scale their business, it becomes more of a legacy play, which then types ties into different parts. So you, know, you start the business to prove to your dad or to your family member or some girl in high school who didn't want to go out with you that you're great, you can do anything. Well, once you've achieved the success in business, yet you still have that emptiness inside or that lack of purpose inside, then that's really where the magic comes in and how do you create that, that sense of purpose around what you want to accomplish. You know, like Simon Sinek talks about in his, his why book. It's like, what is your why? Why are you doing this? Yeah. If it's just to make money, it's not going to be super satisfying long term. Yeah, yeah. No, that's sustainable. 
So I'm curious, tell us about how you've taken your experience as an entrepreneur, as a CEO, growing your business into the work that you're doing now in an advisory capacity. What have you transferred into this process? Uh, What are you focused on now? What kind of problems are you working with in terms of uh, helping entrepreneurs, CEOs, leaders inside businesses and and with their businesses? What, What is the work that you're doing today? Well, the work I do right now, always with the entrepreneur, starts first and foremost with the individual leader or the individual CEO. My work is, I call it inside out work. I've got to work on the mindset. I've got to get the entrepreneur aligned with where they want to go because every single client I've walked into is where they think they're going and where they want to go rarely align. And the only way to increase margins and grow revenue and have satisfaction is to recognize that you have to have a life by design. Mm-hmm. And there's work-life integration. There's no such thing as work-life balance. <laughs> yeah, it just it's a, it's a myth. Yeah. And if you're chasing it, you're never going to be satisfied. So a lot of times what I have to do is I ask the entrepreneurs that you need to think these questions are super simple. Like, well, what do you want? All right. Well, I want to be rich. Okay, great. Tell me why. Yeah, exactly. What are you going to do with it with your time once right. you're rich? Right. Yeah. And then that and really it breaks them down to it often takes them back to their core values. Yeah. And why are they doing this? I had one client say to me, I want to be in uh, the Midwest. I want to be in 25 different states. By the end of the conversation, once he realized all that it was doing, and the guy's making a boatload of money now, he's like, you know what? I think I'm just going to have a lifestyle business. I'm going to hire a replacement CEO, and I'm going to go out, and I'm going to become an investor, and I'm going to go travel the world with my wife. He's like 35. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. But he thought he thought success was one thing. And I used to think success was one thing. You know, Success was money and boats yeah. and houses and all that stuff. For me, success is really simple now. It's doing what I want, when I want, as often as I want to do it, with whomever I want to do it with. And if you really break it down, you can go for a walk in the park on a Wednesday at 2 p.m. with your significant other, have a great conversation, and that's a great day, assuming you've set your life up correctly. So a lot of the work I do is getting them to figure out what do they want, why they want it, then I take it down the path of it always starts with people. I know there's, you know, we got Vern Harnish and Gazelles, EOS with Gina Wickman, both great tools. I use their tools and they both know it and their tools are great. But they argue that, you know, I argue that it's the people first because people make all the decisions about strategy. People make all the decisions about execution. People make all the decisions about cash and people make all the decisions about staff and the people on the team, whether they stay or they go. So it always comes down to people. I spend so much time helping companies and entrepreneurs get out of their own way, work better <laughs> with their people. Yeah. Because really, if you get your CEOs going in the right direction, they have one job. They have one job is to remove bottlenecks within the organization and make it easy for people to work for you and make it easy for people to do business with you. That's your number one job. Your number one job, I find so many of them get so excited about being a firefighter. They like want to solve problems. They want to get in there and do a bunch of things. When we really peel it back nine out of 10 times, the chief firefighter, the CEO, is also the chief arsonist who started the fire and didn't tell anybody. <laughs> I love it. No, and I, I just laugh because it's so true. It's I just yeah. see it in so many times. You know, the, it's interesting. You, you mentioned this before, and I just wanted to kind of touch on it. This whole, you know, really understanding what your core values are and like, why do you want to build and grow the company? And I, I've just seen time and time again, you get, you know, we successfully grow the business. We take a couple of years. Things are doing really, really well. We now have offers for acquisition. We can start going down the path of doing a deal. And, you know, we get down to the final throws and entrepreneurs blow up deals because they, they, they get petrified. They're not sure what they're going to do after they sell the business. And so right. now what I do, one of the first conversations I have with any CEO, any founder that I'm working with is saying, okay, so we've sold the company. What are you going to do? And we actually mm-hmm. have to design that life. We have to figure out what it is, like literally day by day, what's your daily routine going to be? What are you going to focus on? Because if they haven't figured out how they're going to continue to to feel valuable, to have progress, to set goals, to be working on something in an engaged way, they, they will do horrible things to derail deals 
deals at the last moment because they get petrified of, of actually wanting to sell. They like, I don't actually don't want to sell because I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I couldn't agree with you more. I've seen, in fact, I've got a friend of mine who went through that, that whole arc and decided not to sell. Yeah. He actually created a process where he named a successor. So he still owns yeah. the company and enjoys that, but he doesn't go in anymore. He comes in for once a quarter board meetings mm-hmm. and he has, he's available as a resource, but he decided not to sell. So again, and, and now he travels the world. He just wrote his first yeah. book. He's on a speaking tour. He's, he's giving, and he giving back all of his book proceeds and all of his speaking fees go right to charity. So that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. Cause buddy, what he did think, like you're mentioning is he wanted to sell the business to, to cash out. It's so interesting because, I, and I often tell my, my entrepreneur, I said, you know, the problem of not knowing what you're going to do when you retire is, is a universal problem. And I tell him a story about a machinist that I knew when I was actively recruiting. He goes, I can't wait till I retire. I'm going to start living my life. I'm going to retire at 58. And I've got all these big plans. He was dead by 61 because he golfed all the golf he wanted to do. He, he went to Rome. He did all these kind of things yeah. and kind of became buddies. And all of a sudden I get an email from his wife one day that he had passed away. And I argue he, he passed away because he had no reason to get out of bed. Yeah, he ran, he, he, he checked off everything on his list. Yeah. And he did yeah. it in about eight months. Like, yeah. hey, now what? Yeah. Well, it's so important now to do, you know, I always tell my entrepreneurs, what if you only work three days a week? What would those days yeah. look like? Would they be money making activities? Would they be team building activities? Because again, if all you're going to be doing is crossing off a list, and there's nothing wrong with being, you know, a, a solopreneur or having a, being an active worker if you really enjoy the work. I got yeah. a client right now. He does construction. He likes building things. Yeah. He's like, I, you know what? I like managing the projects, but I like doing these things myself. So I know I'm not going to scale, mm-hmm. and I'm okay with that. But help me live a better life. And those are the things we work on. So just like you talked about, it's so key. What is your end game? But not just what is your game? Why do you want it? Because if you're going to be the entrepreneur who's going to sell your business, think you're going to be the next Mark Cuban on Shark Tank and you're going to go <laughs> invest in other businesses, that's a different job. That's a different career than being a startup, being a tech person cashing out for $2 million. The skills are different. Yeah. And you, I know a lot of guys who sold their businesses, tried to become that next angel investor, and they don't know what they're doing because they're, they get excited about the deal. They get excited about the sale. They get excited about the entrepreneur, and they don't evaluate them as crisply as they should. And their financial disciplines yeah. are weak because they're deal junkies. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the other one I find is they – they they end up wanting to really just get involved in the business, right? And I and I always find that you know uh, being a venture capitalist, you know, being an angel investor, like that that is a job. And and there are people that are good at it, and there are people that are not good at it. And if you if you just kind of go into it as a hobby, it's it's going to be painful and probably financially not very rewarding. Because I think a lot of a lot of people end up going to kind of angel investing as kind of a, a side door into be getting back into business, you know, getting back oh, into sure. running the business. Uh, and, and I think that's I've seen that recipe you know fail. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so have I. It's but again. They, they, I think we, you know, you go to social media, you go to television, people live in the spectrums, so you know, the, everything's either awful or everything's wonderful. The rest of the world is most of us, 95% of us are in the middle. Yeah. And just because you're great at starting a company, one doesn't mean you're going to be a great, just because you're a great entrepreneur doesn't make you a great CEO. And just because maybe you were a great entrepreneur and a decent CEO doesn't necessarily make you a great investor. They're different skill sets, you know, yeah. taking it back to, you know, I, I love sports and I, I think Bill Belichick is an absolute genius. Bill Belichick has mm-hmm. been into more Super Bowls than any other coach in history. He wasn't a very good player. Yeah. He's been, and if you look at his lineage, how many coaches have fallen off his coaching tree have gotten head coaching jobs. So he's built leaders. Mm-hmm. So he's built systems and processes. So as players come and go, the success continues going on. Having Tom Brady doesn't hurt, but also Tom Brady was the number 200 pick in the draft. He came out of year. He came out of college. Yeah. So, 
There's a system. It requires discipline, and it requires adherence to the system with flexibility for for in, in the moment issues. But it's his system, and his discipline to that system. I think has helped him. And again, if you're if you're not going to be a disciplined entrepreneur, and you're going to love the highs and lows and the rises and the falls, that there's there's a there's an energy to that, and there's a a time commitment to that that may may prevent you from getting where you really want to end up. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're hitting on a mindset thing that I think is really important, um, which is this, I see a lot of founders who are, are excellent, uh, individual contributors are excellent doers in some ways. So they're brilliant technologists, scientists, you know, legal minds, doctors, you know, people that have amazing, uh, technical capabilities, doing capabilities, you know, and so they found companies, they, they create companies and they grow them and they, they fail to make this shift of being, you know, my job is to do and to create value and to work with the client to designing and developing the company and hiring talent and getting people in the right seats and, and making sure that I'm supporting them and developing them. And I, and I think it's I think it's hard because I think a lot of folks, you know, end up their ego is kind of wrapped up into being a brilliant technologist, a brilliant security analyst, you know, and, and they fail to kind of make this jump to say, hey, look, I need to find other people that are, who are going to be the brilliant people, the doers, and I need to be a brilliant leader. And I just I find that that is a tough a tough transition to make. I'm curious what you've ran into, oh, anything that you've so, seen that helps that process. I think I am the best example of that. Um, <laughs> you know, pride and ego doesn't care. Yeah. And I, pride and ego paralyzed me thinking I had to have all the answers all the time. It's paralyzed me. When I, when I reached out, you know, for, for a lot of people, pride and ego prevents them from reaching out for, for help. I've got some, some friends of mine and we had a long conversation one night and they, they've been 10 years sober. And I talked about my behavior and how my brain was firing and how my brain, the decisions I was making when I was in chaos, when I was crashing my business almost. They're, the behaviors and the mindset and the actions and the pride and ego were almost identical to that of an addict, to that of an alcoholic. <laughs> and to hear, the, you know, hear people who've been sober for so long saying, yeah, pride and ego doesn't care. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so true because pride and ego will get us to do things that are, are risky and dangerous and irresponsible versus you know what? This is not working. I need to get help. And whether it's with a coach, whether it's through a group like an EO or a YPO, a peer to peer organization, or again, if you can't afford either one of those, go to your local score chapter. There are resources out there for people who need the help. But the reality is we do a lot of silly things due to pride and ego. And what I've learned, especially in my coaching business that I, if I do three things, if I I call it ATV, if I'm authentic, I'm transparent and I demonstrate transparent and I demonstrate vulnerability, I get a whole lot further with my executives because they're like, oh my gosh, I thought nobody knew it. It's like, no, we all realized, I thought you knew the breeze was telling you, Mr. Emperor, that you have no clothes. So yeah, your business is crashing. Nobody would tell me. I'm going to help point that out to you Mm -hmm. because pride and ego are not going to get you out of this by being humble, getting help, pivoting, adjusting, trying something today that doesn't work, then scrapping it and trying something new tomorrow and not beating yourself up for it. That's how you're going to get out of this problem. Yeah. That's uh, excellent advice. I think that it's something I learned as well in my in my personal journey. And I, yeah, I just see it all the time, all the time. Uh, Todd, this has been a pleasure. Um, if people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? Yeah, Bruce, the best place to catch up with me is at my website, extraordinaryadvisors.com. And anybody who's heard me on the podcast today, please reach out to me. Go to the contact section. 
Book some time on my calendar. I'm happy to give anybody who's heard the podcast today 30 minutes for free of my time to hear what problems they're having, to hear what, how they're stuck, and how maybe we can give them a couple of tips to get unstuck. Awesome. I will make sure that the link uh, to the website and to the booking page is on the show notes so people can click through and get that and get a hold of you. I encourage everyone to take Todd up on that offer. It's, it's incredible what a half-hour conversation with someone who's who's been through a lot of situations can do for you. So I appreciate that. This has been great. I really appreciate the time. I think we've had some really good insights for folks listening on the podcast. And I've enjoyed it. So I thank you for for being on the program. Thank you for the opportunity, Bruce. I had a great time. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.